I saw something this week, and I want you to know, as I share this, I'm not picking on the person in the story, because all of us could easily put ourselves in his shoes. I saw a fellow in a situation where a medical condition had made him dizzy and in no shape to drive, and I saw two Christians around him saying, hey, oh, here we go again. This mic don't like preaching. <laughs> we'll keep trying. Two Christians ready to drive this guy, and he said, no, no, I'll drive. I'll drive. They kept saying, no, we want to take you. And I looked at the guy who needed to drive, and I said, hey, could I, I smiled at him. I said, could I issue you a loving command? Let these guys drive you, because if you don't, you're robbing them of an opportunity to serve God. He smiled back and said, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll let them take me. Sometimes it's hard for us to, to receive from others, isn't it? I think about that and I think about the difference between kids and adults at restaurants, especially if there are men from different families involved, right? You, you go to eat and what do kids do? They find what they want and they say, can I have this? You say, yeah, you order it and they eat it, right? But if there's two men there, especially from different families, when the bill comes, what do you often see happen? I'll cover this. No, I got it. No, I'm telling you, I got it. No, I'm getting it. And to be sure, there's generosity at play. But if we're honest, when we get in that exchange, sometimes is there not that hesitance to receive from another I think about the contrast between the kids at the restaurant and those two guys at the restaurant. And, and I share that because today I want to share about how to come to Jesus for salvation on the one hand and how not to come to Jesus for salvation on the other hand. First one, how to come to Jesus for salvation Open your Bibles to Matthew 19. We're going to start at verse 13. How to come to Jesus for salvation? Like a child with our needs. Ever think about why children are called dependents? It's not difficult because they depend on someone else to meet their needs, right? Verse 13 says, children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. At the time, that was common practice. If there was a well-respected rabbi, parents would, would want to bring their children to him to, to pray over them. It's a little bit like our modern-day parent-child dedication idea. But watch what happened. The disciples... Rebuke the people. You know, maybe their intentions were good. Maybe they thought Jesus was too busy to be interrupted with children. Uh, maybe they thought he was too burdened for this as he was on his way to Jerusalem. But if they thought Jesus would appreciate the sentiment, they were very wrong. Mark 10, 14 says, when Jesus saw them rebuking the people, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. 
you look that word up in the dictionary, it speaks of anger or annoyance at unfair treatment. Jesus was ticked off at his guys for, for rebuking these people. Verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And we know this laying of hands for him wasn't like Monk. You ever watch the old TV show Monk? You know, whenever he touched something, he'd wipe. You know, this is not some distant, cold-hearted touch. Right? We, we know that from Mark chapter 10, verse 16. It says that he he took them in his arms and and blessed them. He went above and beyond what the parents asked for. And and I want to draw two truths out of this that I see here. The first one is secondary, a secondary point. How very much Jesus loves children. George MacDonald said this. He said, no man can be a follower of Jesus if the children are afraid to play at his door. I like that. I, I, I read that quote and I think about Christ for, for children. And I think about the fact that, that Christ's followers should not be the grumps on the next door app whining about the noise of children outside playing kickball. That should not be you, and it should not be me. In fact, I see it as very likely if Jesus lived in your neighborhood or mine, he'd probably go out there and join in the game. Think about this. If we tell children, if we say that God loves them, but then we treat them like an inconvenience, or an annoyance, what message do they pick up about our God? I also think about the the value and the importance of encouraging children. Think about encouraging the children that you have an influence on. It's a discouraging world out there. I think about that and I think about something author Larry Crabb once shared. When, When he was a teenager, he stuttered badly and he stood up to pray in church one day and along with the stuttering he was so nervous he said he got some things wrong in the prayer he he said he thanked the father for hanging on the cross and praised Christ for bringing the spirit up out of the grave and he said I finally said amen and I was bolting for the door because I didn't want to get nailed by somebody ready to to hammer me for my bad theology but before he could get out the door He felt a hand on his shoulder, and he said, "Uh uh-oh, here here it comes. It was a man in the congregation, and the man looked at Larry and said, Larry, I want you to know something. He said, whatever God has for you in your life, I'm behind you 1,000%. And I want you to listen to what Larry Crabb wrote about that moment. He said, even as I write these words, my eyes fill with tears. I have yet to tell that story to an audience without at least mildly choking. 
Those words were life words. They had power. They, they reached deep within my being. My resolve never again to speak publicly weakened instantly. Do we love the children like Jesus loves the children? I believe really that's a point in our passage. Now I want to get to the main point. Main point is the importance of childlike faith for anyone who would enter the kingdom of God. We know that because of what Mark reported. Mark 10, 15, in this very scene, Jesus looks at them and says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Receive it like a child. Go back to the restaurant that I was talking about earlier. They simply ate food that they needed, and then they ate it, right? Receiving like a child means a couple things. Children know they have needs. They don't hesitate to ask for what they need, and they receive what they need, right? Think of some of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Another thing about children, unless they've been hurt badly by the world, at an early age, which sadly does happen. Unless that's happened, they're generally very trusting of those who look over them. They, they believe what you tell them. This hit me a couple weeks ago. I was walking around the park with Luke and the stars were out. Luke's six years old and, and uh, he said something to the effect of, I bet you there's at least 100 stars out there and I said, yeah, there sure are. Uh, and they said, what's the number that's, that's bigger than 100? After hundreds, I said 1,000. He said, I bet you that's how many stars there are. And I realized at that moment that if I had told my six-year-old that there were 1,400 stars in the sky, he, he would believe me because he trusts me, right? Now, that would have been a falsehood. That's the bad news and the warning. We've got to be careful what we pass on to them because they're listening. But there's a wonderful flip side to that. You think about how many of these children are ready to accept Christ if we will only take it to them. Receive it like a child. That's how to come to Jesus for salvation. I want to talk about how not to come to Jesus like the rich man with our astonishing potential. Go with me. Verse 16. As behold, a man came up to him. Now Mark adds some vivid detail here. Mark 10, 17 says he ran up and knelt before Jesus. So this fellow was certainly eager, okay? 
And it's only when we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke together that we read what we know of this man, what we call the story, the rich, young ruler. It's one of those stories where you really see the value of reading all the Gospels together. He was rich. He was young. Scholars tell us in this culture that meant 40 or less. So I guess if you're like me on the other side of that equation, (laughs) you're not young anymore. And he was a ruler maybe of a synagogue, maybe in the Sanhedrin. We don't know. So put all those together, rich, young ruler. In this world's terms, this guy, he, he had it going on, right? And it's in that condition, he assumes that there's something he can do to earn his eternal life, to, to save himself. How do we know that? Look at his question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus' answer comes in three parts. Number one, he's going to challenge the man's understanding of good. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. I want to look at how Mark records this to flesh it out. Mark 10, 17. The man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus saying of himself I'm not good, and therefore I'm not God? No. How do we know that? Because that would contradict many other passages in your Bible. So what's he doing? I believe he's probing this man's understanding of good and his understanding of Jesus. Think of it like this. Like, I imagine it's like Jesus is trying to lead him, right? Only God is good. You think I'm good. So? (laughs) But we don't have any recorded reply by the man here. So Jesus moves on to number two. He takes him to the Ten Commandments. He says, if you would enter life... Keep the commandments. Man said to him, which ones? Good question. There's a lot. Jesus walks him through what we're going to see, the second part of the Ten Commandments, which deal with how we treat other people. Okay? He starts with number six. Jesus said, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness. Then he mixes up the order. He goes back to number five, honor your father and mother. Some have said, why did he do that? Maybe was this a weak area in the young man's life? Had he left mom and dad in the, in the dust? Then he adds kind of a summary of the commandments in the second part of the 10 from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Was that a weakness in the man's life? One thing for sure, 
any Jew at the time would have noticed a glaring omission, and maybe you did too. Jesus did not share commandment number 10. Do you know what commandment number 10 is? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? There's a tug of war going on inside, right? He says out his mouth, all these I have kept, but he still knows there's a hole in here. Something's missing. He's torn. And I wonder if that represents any of you today. If if people ask you how you're doing, you'll say, I'm fine. But when you wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and you're thinking about life, you know full well there's a hole in here. There's something missing. Why the sense of lack for him? Well, he was likely aware that Jesus left out, thou shalt not covet. I think in his awareness of that, perhaps conviction had set in. Perhaps in his love for money and a covetous desire for more, he knew deep down that he fell short. And what does James 2.10 say? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So Jesus sees this man torn, and we learn something wonderful about the heart of God here from Mark 10.21. It's at this moment we read Jesus looking at him, loved him. If you're here this morning and you're in that place, that tug of war, Jesus loves you. He goes on to number three. Jesus points to the one thing keeping this man from trusting. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that word perfect in the New Testament can mean complete. In other words, if you would be complete in your search for eternal life, Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now is selling everything and giving it to the poor a universal command for every disciple? No, this is the only guy in the Bible you you see Jesus say this to. What I think of what Jesus is doing here, strangely enough, I think of the old movie E.T., one of the first movies I saw in a theater with my grandpa. You remember when Elliot was hurt and E.T.'s finger starts lighting up and and he goes, ouch. He, He touched him exactly where it hurt. That's what I see going on here. Jesus is putting his, his finger on the very obstacle keeping this man from trusting and following him. His riches had become an idol. How would the young man respond? Verse 22, it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. 
for he had great possessions. I don't know about you, but to me, that is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why did he leave filled with sorrow? Because he was not willing to knock down the idol that was keeping him from trusting the Savior he needed. I believe he was half-hearted in his pursuit of God. I'll, I'll follow as, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. I think of that and I think about something Wilbur Reese wrote. It's called $3 worth of God. He wrote, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please half-hearted what's the opposite of half-hearted wholehearted all in right I think about Jeremiah 29 13 what does he say he says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart I read that verse and I think about a heat-seeking missile right that thing will follow every twist and turn and it will not stop until it reaches its mark is that how we are seeking after God? I think of what Paul said in Philippians 3.8. He said, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All in. I want to ask us an important question today. Is there anything in your life that is keeping you from trusting God this morning? Anything keeping you from trusting in Christ? As we move to a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, I want to focus on our desperate need for God in this matter of salvation. Verse 23, as the man left, Jesus said to his disciples, maybe they're watching him head out with his entourage, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now some speak of a gate in Jerusalem where a camel had to kneel to get in, but I don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about here because of where he goes in verses to come. He's talking about a literal camel and a literal needle eye. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions. Is it wrong to have riches? No. You can look through the scriptures and find examples of godly people who did. Abraham 
and David among them. Can a rich person become a Christ follower? Absolutely. Remember little Zacchaeus? Joseph of Arimathea? Right. But are riches something to be very careful with? Yes. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. DC Talk put it colloquially in one of their old songs, Things of This World. They said, you, you say you like to have money? Well, I do too. The problem starts when the money has you. Jesus' own words in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Does he say you should not serve God and money? No, he says you cannot. Choose your master. Verse 25 in our passage, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, part of this came out of a current understanding. At the time, it was believed that riches were a sign of God's favor. And there's, there's a string of that you'll find today even, right? So maybe they're thinking if the rich enter with difficulty, what hope is there for the rest of us average dudes? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. That right there is why I believe he was speaking of a literal camel and a literal eye of a needle. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How thankful are you for the second part of that verse? Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But if you're following the context here, you're saying, okay, if it's impossible with man, why did Jesus earlier say to the man, if you would enter life, keep the commandments? Did Jesus believe the man could earn his own salvation? No. No, he might as well have told the man, jump across the Sea of Galilee, right? I believe the reason Jesus brought up the law was to convict him of his sin and help him see his desperate need for a Savior. He was using the law as Galatians describes it, right? As a guardian to lead us to Christ, Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. But now that faith has come, 
We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You see what the law was for? It's like a mirror to, to show me I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Sadly, this man walked away. In verse 27, Peter picks up on the fact that this guy walked away, and he looks at Jesus and said, see, we have left everything and followed you. He, he didn't, but we did. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking to his apostles, right? Now he's going to talk to all followers, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I summarize what Jesus is saying to Peter and to us is, listen, the rewards will far outweigh the sacrifice. Some of us need to remember that this morning. The rewards will far outweigh the sacrifice. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8.18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is saying something. When you look at the gravity of some of the suffering in this world, he's saying next to the glory that's to come, that's going to look like nothing. So when you look at the gravity of the suffering, it makes you say, what kind of glory must that be for him to even say that? But as we close, I want to focus on this. I want to focus on this. If you had asked Jesus' disciples today, that, that day, who would make a good disciple, the children or the rich man, I think they likely would have put their money on the rich man. He certainly would have been ranked higher in their mind. After all, they didn't rebuke him for coming, right? But the words of Jesus in verse 30 would forever flip their paradigm. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. How would you approach God this morning? Would you approach him as the rich man with your astonishing potential? Or as the needy child with open hands? If you have never received this Savior, I want to walk you through briefly some verses that we call the Romans Road to Salvation. If you're there at that crossroads, you're torn. Listen closely. Romans 3.12. As no one does good, not even one. That's looking at goodness from God's perspective, right? No one's good like God is good. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. See, the bad news is you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. The good news is sinners are the only kind of people Jesus came to save. You want to come with your hands open, just like the song Billy Graham always used at the end, right? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Would that be you this morning? For the believer, I want to remind us of a couple things. That living the Christian life faithfully on a day-in, day-out basis is just as impossible with man as beginning the Christian life. So let let me ask you a question. Are, Are you out there grinding it out in your own power? Or are you depending on the Holy Spirit who lives within? I need you, God. I need your Holy Spirit to live this life. Second question. Even for a believer in Jesus Christ, it's possible for our walk to become half-hearted during certain seasons, is it not? Are you half-hearted in your walk with Jesus today, believer? Or are you all in? I saw this played out in a conversation I had this week. They said, feel free to share it. Someone we know and love dearly who believed in Christ as a teenager, now now older, was in a relationship with a non-Christian. Non-Christian had a house. They're all living there. And, And she said to us, this is everything I thought I wanted but I'm not satisfied. See, I know only God will bring me the satisfaction I'm looking for. So she said, pray for me because I'm going to have a talk with everybody in my family and, and even if it means moving back to my apartment, I'm okay with that. So I'd ask you to pray for that individual even though you don't know him, but I'd also ask you with that in mind, is there anything like that in your life? that's keeping you from being all in. Any idol that needs smashed. You see, the hymn I think of for the believer as the worship team comes back up is take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. We're going to sing that as communion is passed. I'd ask you to hold the elements, and I invite all the believers in the room to share communion with us together after that song.
Lord, we thank you for this precious passage here where you show us so clearly how to come and how not to come. And I ask that you would work in this room according to your spirit, how you wish in each heart. As we think about us coming with open hands as needy beggars, we we say thank you for the cross where salvation was provided through the blood of the, the lamb, Jesus Christ. As we prepare to remember that together, may we have hearts filled with gratitude. May you draw any loss to the foot of the cross to salvation. May you stir in the hearts of believers this morning to be all in as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.